So my mom was really sick when I was growing up. This is a big part of my narrative and my story when I talk to people. I usually start around there because it was the biggest feature of my life when I was young. She took a lot of medication. She was hospitalized a lot. She, um, she had a lot of household accidents. For most of my adolescence, she was uh, living in our living room in a hospital bed right next to the couch. She had a lot of doctors, and all that added up to us getting a, a ton of mail. And I'm not talking about sympathy cards. Uh, we got a ton of bills, hundreds, and, um, and, and she was always paying careful attention to them, and she was organizing them. You'd go into wherever she was, whether she was like in a recliner or in um, a bed. She always had stacks and stacks of mail and bills around her in order to make uh, sure that there were no clerical errors, she would use like highlighters and sticky notes, you know, to, to highlight uh, on the bills and uh, things like pass to amount and final notice, she would highlight those, those words. And she'd use sticky notes to draw uh, her and my or uh, the rest of our family's attention to the most important ones, the ones that, that she deemed to require our immediate attention. And, and this is, was a theme throughout my whole upbringing. Um, and, she, and these bills, you know, had been coming my whole life, and they, they came her entire life. And, and I've watched her organize and categorize those bills since I was a small child. In fact, uh, growing up, my mom would get a new bill in, and she'd a a anxiously bring it to my dad, uh, who was a bit of a jokester. And, and, and he'd respond by saying, well, let's just enroll them in the $5 a month club. And we had this, uh, he'd do this quick calculation. He was actually an accountant, and he'd do this quick calculation in his mind. He'd say, okay, this bill's for $18,500. That means they're enrolled for 308 years and three months. Um, you know, and he'd kind of lightheartedly say, you know, we'll, we'll do the best we can, but we really, you know, he didn't allow it to burden him like my mom did. Um, and, and he'd joke, we'll have this sucker paid off in like 2097. It's going to be amazing, you know. And, uh, and my mom and, and dad would stroke a check every month to all of those debtors for, for $5. And there were a lot of people um, in our society and even in our congregation who understand the, the, the crushing stress of overwhelming debt. Sometimes our debts are the result of our own sinful gluttony. Um, and sometimes, like in my mom's case, they're the result of circumstances beyond our control. No matter how it comes, though, debt enslaves us. The, bar, the, the, the uh, scripture teaches us that, uh, that debt enslaves us. The borrower is slave to the lender, says Proverbs 22. And many of us have, have felt this pain and this hopelessness of overwhelming debt. So today, at the conclusion of Matthew 18, we read this this brilliant parable by Jesus, the, the absolute master storyteller. And he pictures in this story the sinfulness of man, you, your and mine sinfulness, as a monetary debt owed from a slave to a master. So let's talk through uh, the verses uh, one at a time and sort of tune our ears to what Jesus is trying to say to us, what he's trying to help us to understand about our debt before God. The first thing he wants us to see out of this passage is that our debt to God is far beyond our means to repay. Look at verse 24 there. He says, when he began to settle, this is the master, he began to settle the debts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, notice that the master was settling everyone's debts. It wasn't just this man's debts. He was settling debts for everybody in this occasion. Not just the man in the story. This is an obvious picture 
of what the Bible tells us will happen to all men, all mankind, on Judgment Day. That we will stand before our Master and we will give an account for our debt before Him. So Jesus focuses the story on one debtor, though. Not on all the debtors who owe debt, but just on one debtor, a man who owed 10,000 talents. So I don't know about you, but the first and most obvious question when I read this is, how much is 10,000 talents? Like, I need some kind of sense. If this is, this is a, a manageable amount of money, they can pay off pretty reasonably, or if it's not. So uh, the parable, you know, the meaning of the parable is really dramatically affected by the answer to that question, isn't it? You know, if, if it's a really small amount that could be repaid easily, then the parable means one thing. If it's a large amount that can't be repaid easily, it means something different. So, so you know, the meaning of the parable is dramatically affected by the answer to the question. So let's spend just a moment trying to answer the question and understand what a talent is and, and how many 10,000 of them are. You have to understand, uh, to understand a talent, you have to understand a, a smaller denomination called a, a denarii or a denarius. Now, a denarius is, is one day's wage for a typical laborer. So it's essentially minimum wage, uh, about $90 uh, in, in, in our current U.S. currency. Um, I think the minimum wage in Virginia is $11 right now. And so um, something around $90 would be a, an eight-hour day's wage. So uh, a Jewish man working six days a week for, say, 50 weeks a year would earn about 300 denarii annually, uh, or about $27,000 if you wanted to translate it into our money to get, get a sense. Now, suppose you continue to work as a day laborer, earning 300 denarii a year. After 20 years of such labor, you would have earned about 6,000 denarii, and at that point, you could go to your king and say to your king, after 20 years of work as his debtor, congratulations, uh, the king would say, congratulations, you've worked off uh, 20 years and now you've earned 6,000 denarii or $540,000 and you've paid every penny to me and that's enough to pay back one talent of the 10,000 talents you owe. You now have 9,999 more talents to pay. From this, we can easily see that if it takes 20 years to earn one talent, the repaying 10,000 talents would require us working 200,000 years. And in today's money, the most conservative estimate is that the servant owes his master about $4 billion. Okay, so I expected something kind of large for the story to make sense, but I did not expect $4 billion, right? Uh, in fact, it, that... That makes a whole new question for me. Like, what in the world did this man do to get into $4 billion? I don't even know if I could get into $4 billion of debt if I really, really tried for my whole life. Um, I think it would probably not be possible. What did this man do to get into this incredible debt? Uh, and so, what in the world did he, did he do to earn 10,000 talents of debt before his master? An inconceivable amount of money. So, so here's the thing I want you to see. Don't, I, it is important for this story, for the understanding of this story, that the debt be such an exorbitant amount that he could never repay. But it is not important for us to understand the answer to the question, how did he get in such debt? Remember, it's a story. Okay? So don't focus your attention on that. Just remember, it's a parable. Jesus is trying to make a point here. Uh, and it's not about uh, denarii or, or debt at all. The thing that's important for you to catch here is that it is absolutely inconceivable and impossible for this man to ever repay this debt. 
inconceivable that this slave could ever repay his debt. The thing we have to learn from this spiritually, because remember he's using a monetary example to talk about a spiritual reality. So the thing you and I have to understand from this story is that spiritually speaking, we are an inconceivable pile of debt, and our debt to God is far beyond any means that we could possibly imagine being able to repay, ever. That's what we have to understand about our debt. That's why the sum is so great. The second thing we're supposed to see from this text, look in verse 25, where he says, And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and his children, and all they had, and payment to be made. Now, if they were sold as slaves, and all their possessions, and everything they had, and that were paid back, you and I both know that that would have only been a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of what was owed to the master. So what we're supposed to learn from this, what we see here, is that for our spiritual bankruptcy, our, de- our master is demanding everything like the situation we are in spiritually the great debt that we owe to god the great uh, weight of our sin the only acceptable means for response to that is everything we have and even that doesn't even touch the tip of the iceberg just like in modern bankruptcy you lose everything you have Your home is sold to another family. Your car is sold to another driver. Another dude's fishing off your boat. Um, The slave's master demanded everything of him for this debt. And what we're supposed to understand from this is that our debt will cost us everything. Now, don't forget the fact that Jesus is really talking about spiritual debt here. And that this, and in this story, you and I are the slaves and God is the master. We are, uh, we are spiritually bankrupt before God. The sum of our, uh, our offering to satisfy our debt to God is not enough by a long shot. And the master is just and fair to take everything that we have to satisfy just a tiny portion of the debt. But to the master, the tiny portion that will be satisfied, he's not going to experience or feel that very much. In spiritual terms, we are far poorer than we realize, spiritually speaking, and our debt is far greater than we can imagine. And Jesus is warning us here that there is a day coming when the master will settle his debts with you. See, we live this life not thinking about the day when we will give an account. But unless the Bible's just way off base and this whole thing is just untrue, there will be a day where each of us will stand before a holy God who's lived a perfect and sinless life, and we will give an account for the ways in which we have sinned against him. So, It's important for us to understand that this story is meant to teach us that our spiritual bankrupt, for our spiritual bankruptcy, the master, God, will demand our everything. The third thing that I want you to see is in verse 26, and it's very simply that our our hearts that are so prideful, our prideful hearts will tell us that we can do the impossible. It will tell us that we can settle our debts before God. This is what we do when we're pinned against a wall. We think, I, I can get out of this. I can do this. I can make this happen. Our pride 
comes up and, and we start to think that we can do this thing that is insurmountable on our own with our own strength. Look at the, uh, the verse, verse 26. So the servant falls to his knees and he begins imploring or begging the master. Have patience with me, he says, and I'll pay you everything. I'll pay you everything. But he can't pay him everything. He'll never be able to pay him everything. But, he, but it's his only hope. It's the only hope that he has is to say to the master, he'll do everything. Two interesting things happen here. First, the slave doesn't argue about the validity of the debt. That's generally our first move, or my first move. The first thing I would do is, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can I see the, can I see the accounting that's going on here? You know, that says that I owe that. I don't remember spending all that much. I don't remember going in that deep. Well, in this story, the servant does not argue the debt. He assumes full responsibility right away. And, and his response seems really honorable to you and I, doesn't it? His response is like, I'm going to pay it up. I'm good for it. And just, just give me some time. It seems like an honorable response. Have patience with me. I'll pay you back everything. But the truth is, if 100, in a hundred lifetimes, this slave could not pay back his master. Just as impossible as it was for my mom to be able to pay all of those debts owed to her. She passed away a few years ago and she died with all those debts still to her name. Um, it was impossible for my mom to pay those debts, but she believed she could. She was working toward it. She was trying. She was doing everything in her power to chip away at it. She wasn't even able to work. She didn't even have an income to earn a living. She didn't play the lottery. I mean, there was no way that she was ever going to be able to repay that, yet she tried. Despite the destitute situation and the promises we make, we cannot pay our debts. And the master knows we can't pay our debts. But even in this parable, there is, there is good news. Like the, the gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners is buried inside this story about a master and his slave in an insurmountable debt. Look to verse 27. The master, out of pity for him, released him and forgave him of the debt. God is merciful and he's ready to forgive bankrupt sinners. That's the, the point we're supposed to get from the first half of this story. That our debt is insurmountable, but that God is merciful and he is quick. He's ready to. He stands prepared to forgive debts. Oh, this is, in, I mean, incredible. I mean, sometimes it's hard for us to, like, grab hold of how incredible spiritual truth is. Like, put this into the monetary truth. <laughs> like, you're the guy in $4 billion worth of debt. And you're standing before, kneeling before the master, and you're begging. It's going to cost you your family, your life, your possessions, everything. You'll be a slave for the rest of your life. And so were your wife and your children. And the master looks down at you, and in mercy, he says, you're forgiven. Go free. I mean, we can almost grasp it, like in monetary terms, way more vividly than we can in spiritual terms, can't we? Maybe this is why Jesus is talking to us in monetary terms. That's incredible. Forgiven, full and free, not bankrupt anymore, but totally satisfied. 
This is what God has done for us in salvation. This is what Jesus has done for us. Not just forgiven of our debt, but satisfied. Released from obligation. Oh, friends, you've, if you've never quite understood what the big deal is about Jesus, why we make such a big deal about him, why the Bible makes such a big deal about him, why we consider him to be the central figure of human history, it's because of this truth. This is the big deal about Jesus, that God demonstrates his love toward us by sending Jesus who stood in our place and received the just punishment due us for our sin. In fact, it, this act of grace is a gift to us given by God. We are told this, for by grace we have been saved through our faith. It's a gift from God and not a result of anything we've done. At least we boast about it. Remember, remember who you are in the story, who I am in the story. We are in overwhelming debt that we can by no means ever pay. The sum of our life's earnings is a small fraction of our debt. And, and out of the overflow of God's goodness and his compassion and his his loving kindness toward us, he pardoned us full and free, and, and, and so much more, he welcomed us into his family as sons and daughters. So it even goes beyond the story, the parable. He not just pardoned us full and free to go off and live our own life, but he welcomed us in to the master's household. He brought us in as heirs with Christ into the household of faith, you have been saved by Jesus. You have been moved from the position of slave to the position of son. And that is, that is better than being forgiven as a slave or freed as a slave. We are moved from, this, from this, uh, this hard life to this life of, of freedom and favor. You are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And you are no, you're not just a son, but you are a son of a wealthy master, and you are an heir of his fortune. I mean, incredible. You are no longer a slave, Galatians 4 says. You are a son and an heir through God. So the picture of this parable, if the parable were to take it as far as the gospel takes it, is that not just would the master have forgiven him, but would have forgiven him and invited him into his household as a family member, as a chosen son. Man, this is, this is like so rich. The, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so rich. Look at verses 28 and 30. But when that same servant went out, like you can, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been under a debt that you don't know how you're going to pay. I have. Uh, and, and when that thing is finally done, I mean, this is an aside, but, but about 10 years ago, uh, well, maybe longer than that, the Welches here and, and I went through uh, Financial Peace University for the same time together. And as your pastor, I was under a crushing amount of debt. And I went into that class to help out the church members, you know. It's the right thing to do. And uh, I wanted all you guys to, to get your financial lives in order. Truth is, I was a mess financially. And I went into that class and I saw my sin for the first time. And I repented and I began to change. We started doing things very differently, financially speaking, in our household. We sold a lot of stuff. We, 
we uh, got ourselves after about two years out of, of debt and began building um, a life that made more sense financially and was more in line with Jesus' teachings about the, the scripture. But I just remember when we paid off that last debt payment, <laughs> what that felt like. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget what that felt like. Just the, the freedom of this thing that I thought I would never get out from under. And that's just a tiny portion of what Jesus has done for us. But we can't appreciate it. We can't understand it unless we really understand how sin is crushing us. How much we'll have to pay for what we've done. We see, we see the problem with this, uh, this right away, this situation where the servant went out and he found his fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii. Remember, that's about 100 days wages, still a pretty sizable amount of money. And he seized him and he began choking him, saying to him, pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him in the almost the identical words he used with the master, have patience with me, I will repay you. It was actually plausible that this man could repay him. It was not plausible that he could repay the master, yet he refused and he put him into prison until he should pay his debt. So we see the problem with this right away, don't we? We see the problem. It, 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 um, if this had happened before the master and the master pardoned him, we, we'd have thought little about it. But extravagant mercy was shown to this man, the slave. Yet he did not display even a small portion of mercy to the man who owed him. He was forgiven of debt. He could never repay in a hundred lifetimes. He was unable to forgive a man who owed him less than half a year's wage. You see, the message here is clear. Forgiveness for our brothers and sisters. Mercy for fellow slaves is for the Christian not optional. As evil and hypocritical as that man is, you are that man. You are that man when you refuse to offer extravagant forgiveness and mercy to those who sin against you. Jesus, Jesus speaks about this kind of forgiveness and mercy a lot in the New Testament. And on every occasion, the Christian is commanded to forgive in light of the way they've been forgiven. You see, it's, we're, we're, the Christian's not commanded to just forgive. It's not an unhinged or untethered command. It's a command that's always tethered to forgiveness in light of the forgiveness you've received. I know this is, I know this is a terribly tender subject. There are people in this room who hate someone so deeply, dis despise them for what they've done to you, and you believe you are just in your actions. Let me just say to you with all the humility I can possibly say that if if God's word applies to us today, the problem in your relationship is that you do not understand 
how great you have forgiven. If you find it impossible to distribute mercy, grace, forgiveness to someone in your life, it, it has something to do with the fact that you do you 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 are you overestimate the role that that you have played in doing right or being good, and you underestimate the incredible grace that God has bestowed to you. Matthew, Jesus talks about this in Matthew. He says, for if you forgive others of their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. So it's almost like it's got two hinges on it. Hinge number one is you should forgive because Jesus forgave you. Hinge number two is if you do not forgive, Jesus will not forgive you. It's a bit of a brain teaser, but both of those things are simultaneously true in the scripture. It is a tension to manage for us to look at in the Bible and go, this is what God is teaching us. If you do not forgive others of their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also not forgive you. I don't think there's a way to interpret around that. I mean, we, we might, you know, we might try to wrestle with that and try to understand it in light of other scriptures, but, but Jesus is so incredibly explicit and clear here. Your role in forgiving others is to offer full and free forgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus the sinless Savior prays on behalf of humankind to God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Like, you see how they're always, like, hinged together? They're always tethered together. So, Christian, what does this mean for you? It means that not only is forgiveness the means by which you receive new birth, but forgiveness is the result of new birth. Forgiveness is not just the way that you became a Christian, but it is also a present reality in your life to be distributed to others when you are a Christian. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. That's C.S. Lewis. Look at verse 31. <clears throat> When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Here's what I want you to see and understand. Hypocrisy will always disturb onlookers. Hypocrisy, a lack of forgiveness, will always disturb onlookers. And by onlookers, I mean those who look at your spiritual life and scrutinize it. They look at it with a curious eye. They wonder, is there any merit or any substance to this facade of spirituality in your life? And hypocrisy is like a blinking red light that says, nope, no merit. It's totally false. It's completely fake. It means nothing. But kindness and generosity and forgiveness is like a blinking green light that says, yes, it's true. The gospel's true. It changes people. This man's 
This woman's spirituality has substance. Hypocrisy, or the lack of hypocrisy, is the thing that will show onlookers. If you talk to a non-Christian who has a chip on their shoulder about Christianity or faith, you will hear the word hypocrisy. You will. In every conversation. Because it is the most obvious feature. Why are Christians so often, often labeled as hypocrites? It's because we are so often hypocrites. I mean, in fact, the, I mean, the depth of our hypocrisy is far greater than most realize. Instead of us getting defensive, we should get introspective. Our hypocrisy is magnified by the fact that the world knows that Jesus forgave us of everything. Christians are those people who have been forgiven of everything. Our bumper sticker says it. We're not perfect, we're just forgiven. They know that. But but they know they, they don't believe it themselves, but they know that we believe it. We claim to be forgiven. We claim to be pardoned. We claim to be in, in harmony with God. Yet, so often, we're found choking out some dude over 100 denarii. Metaphorically speaking. So maybe you haven't choked somebody out this week, but admit with me that forgiving others especially those who have really, really hurt you, is, is, is hard for us to do. Maybe, maybe you um, haven't choked somebody out, but, but when we begin to admit that forgiving others is hard to us, we begin to realize that in order for us to actually do it, we're going to have to turn our attention to the great forgiveness that was, was given to us. Because in light of that forgiveness, it's hard to choke someone out. It's hard to do that. It's hard to hold someone else to an account when we, are, we have top of mind all of the grace and benevolence that's been showed to us. Forgiving others, being patient with others, showing mercy to others is difficult for us. And it's difficult because we are forgetful. We are the forgetful slaves in the parable. We're so excited about what we've been freed from that we run off skipping about Choking other people out when they owe us to be merciful to our husband or our wife we've done some, who's done something to hurt us, even something that hurts us deeply. We think of our rights. We, we don't think of Jesus' rights, his excruciating death on the cross bearing our sins. When someone commits an injustice toward us, the, uh, uh, and, and, and the eyes of those still under the press of debt before God though they, they may seem disinterested when, when others are looking at us, when onlookers are looking, you know, they may seem disinterested, but, but it's true that they're really always paying attention to us. They're always looking for our hypocrisy because remember, it's the thing that signifies a substance to our faith or a shallowness to our faith. They'll always notice inconsistencies in our life. You Think of coworkers, neighbors, and friends who are just disinterested in God. Honestly, the, the best thing you can do for them from a gospel standpoint is pray that Jesus would open their eyes and live um, gracious, forgiving lives before them. I remember um, when Noah, uh, many of you know Noah, our, our 20-year-old son, 
when he was a, a really young kid, um, I think he was about five, and uh, <coughs> Jennifer and I were in a period of like intense fellowship. I don't know if you've ever had intense fellowship with your spouse, you know, but we were sharing our opinions with one another um, with some volume and strength. And uh, we were in the kitchen. It was a small apartment, and we were in the kitchen, and we were, you know, we were going at it. And, you know, we had had, Noah's our oldest, and he was still relatively young at five, and, and he was in the living room, and he was staring at the TV, watching Blue's Clues or something, whatever he was doing. He was just focused. And so we were conversing under the impression that he had no idea what was going on. And I remember I got so mad, I slammed something down on the counter, and I walked out, I stormed out of the room, and as I was storming by young Noah, little Noah, he didn't move his eyes from the television, but he just said, boy, that was a big fight. <laughs> and I remember it stopped me in my tracks. I mean, it stopped me in my tracks, and I said, oh, man, he just heard me talk to his mom like that. Like, wow. Like, that's what's going on in the cubicles around you. That's going on, what's going on with your neighbors. They're always looking for a gap. They're always looking for a gap. And I'm not telling you to be fake for them. I'm telling you to be real for them. Seven, the, the last thing I want you to see here, verses 32 through 35, then his master summons him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you of all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should, should not have, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. So there's, there's a, a, you know, a clear way that this story results for the Christian who won't offer forgiveness to others. For the, to the person who won't offer forgiveness to others. And the way it resolves is that, that we have to pay our own debts. This is what Jesus is trying to teach us in the parable. And again, the parables aren't meant for us to like scrutinize theological nuances to try to understand the theology of them as much as they're meant to teach us simple truths about God and his gospel. And the simple truth about God and his gospel here is that you must acknowledge your debt before God. You have to see it, you have to own it, you have to know it's yours. That you must stop attempting to satisfy God with your good deeds. It will never work. He will never be satisfied with your good deeds. There's not a version of your spiritual life where God accepts your works to appease his wrath toward your sin. You, you have to, you must, it's not optional, you must forgive others just in the same way that's the words the Bible uses. In the same way that Christ has forgiven you. So until such a time as your forgiveness of others surpasses in magnitude the forgiveness that's been bestowed on you, you must forgive. And last, you must mimic Jesus' mercy and forgiveness to those around you. In a few moments, we are going to partake in the Lord's Supper's, you know, you guys who are here regularly know we do this each week. It's a, it's a way of us remembering the magnitude of what Jesus did for us. This, this little wafer and cracker represents the broken body of Jesus Christ. God 
made flesh, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, died in our place for our sin in order to offer grace and salvation to us. His body was broken for us. The juice represents the blood that was spilled for us. The blood of the only begotten Son of God poured out on our behalf for our sins so that we could be made right with God. This is an incredible act of mercy that God has done. And when we receive the forgiveness that he offers to us, it should cultivate in us a deep desire to extend his forgiveness to others. And so as you take and eat today, I want to encourage you to be, to be um, considering those for whom you might extend the forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ in your life to. It's possible that you're here today and, and you're not a Christian at all. You don't buy this whole thing. In that occasion, I want to just encourage you to let these elements pass by. You don't participate in this thing. This is for those who have received Jesus' forgiveness and, and repented of their sins. But for those of you who have, take and eat and enjoy the grace that's been bestowed on you and, and consider the ways in which you might offer forgiveness and grace to others. Lord Jesus, we love you. We trust in you. We need you more than anything else. And God, everybody around us is telling us that we're the center of the universe and how much we deserve and how we should work to defend ourselves. But God, every time we come to the scripture, it reminds us that, that everything we have has been bestowed by you. It's been given to us by you as an act of grace that we deserve nothing except death, hell, and judgment. And in mercy, you brought us into your family and made us your sons and, 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 and bestowed to us your inheritance. Oh God, we... We, we believe this message, not the message we hear all week long. And so, God, would you help us today to really allow it to seep down into our hearts? God, I pray for people who are here today who are, who are um, enslaved by anger and, and bitterness toward others who have hurt them. God, I pray that you would release them from that anguish. God, that you would, that you would communicate to us again how much we need you, and how full of grace you have been to offer us forgiveness. And God, cultivate a new life, a new heart in us, we ask in Jesus' name, and for his glory alone, amen.